Well, as you find your seats, I would invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah. Over the last several months, we've been going through the historical books of Ezra and Nehemiah that chronicle the return of God's people from exile in Babylon back to Jerusalem, back to the promised land of Israel. We're going to be reading this morning, uh, starting in verse 28 of chapter 10, and so I invite you to turn there in your Bibles. Now, a few years back, Christian author Donald Miller, who wrote the probably his most famous work is Blue Like Jazz, posted a series of blogs in which he explained why it is that he rarely, if ever, attends church. He explained that he doesn't connect with God through singing. He critiqued the lecture-like sermons as not fitting his personal learning style. And in general, he just doesn't get much out of the experience. He concludes, So, do I attend church? Not often, to be honest. Like I said, it's not how I learn. But I also believe the church is all around us. Not to be confined by a specific tribe. I'm fine with where I've landed and finally experiencing some forward momentum in my faith. I worship God every day through my work. It's a blast. And this is where many in our generation have landed on their evaluation of church attendance. They want to keep a sense of Christian spirituality alive. They describe themselves as Christians or believers or Christ followers, but they have found the experience of church unfulfilling or difficult. Church just isn't a blast. In droves, they have abandoned the corporate gathering of God's people with all of its relational inconveniences and outmoded elements like corporate singing and sermons and liturgy. And in its place, they have sought to find a personal spirituality that is open to worshiping God in new and creative ways that meet their emotional needs better than an ancient liturgical program. This pattern of leaving the church for a more personalized spiritual experience was only accelerated during the period of COVID. This has been a time in which those who maybe were more reluctant to try such an individualized approach to the Christian life were given an opportunity to try it out. And they discovered that it was much more easy and convenient to connect with God on their own. They may have kept a tenuous relationship with the church through online worship, but for the most part, their spiritual life consists of individualized and digitized experience that lack all the obligations of being present with real people at a specific time and in a specific place. Now, being that I'm a pastor, I know that I have a vested interest in people coming to church. And so my thoughts may seem a bit biased. However, I don't think that anyone can deny that the decline of participation in corporate worship is a harbinger of an overall decline of Christianity. If people don't corporately unite in the commitments of worship, then by definition, the church dies. And if the church dies, then there is no witness of the gospel in this world. 
And there is no corporate worship being offered to God. Over the past several weeks, we have seen the foundations laid for the rebuilding of the people of God following the exile in Babylon. Two weeks ago, we saw the foundational importance of the preaching of God's Word. Last week, we saw the foundational importance of God's people responding to His Word with repentant prayer. And this week, we'll see the importance of foundational commitments. Commitments that unite the people of God into a unified community. In the Hebrew text, what we have is the last verse of chapter 9 in our English version is actually the first verse of chapter 10 in the original. We read that following the day of repentance and worship before the Lord that we read of in chapter 9, the people of Israel draw up a covenant of how they will respond in obedience to God's Word. If you look there, it Chapter 9, verse 38, it says, Because of all of this, because of God's word preached, because of our repentant prayer, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our priests, our Levites, and our princes. In a sense, these are the membership vows of God's people. Through this firm covenant, they are bound together with one another and with God in the foundational commitments of true biblical religion. And what we will see is that if we would experience the growth and the flourishing, the health of God's kingdom in our generation, then we too must bind ourselves together into the body of Christ through these foundational commitments. So here now... The word of the Lord, Nehemiah chapter 10, starting in verse 28. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, Join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God and His rules and His statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell... We will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day, and we will forgo the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel And for all the work of the house of our God, we, the priests, the Levites, and the people, have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God according to our Father's houses, at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. 
We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and of our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil, to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground. For it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all of our towns where we labor. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers, and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. This is God's holy word for us, his people. Let us go to him in prayer. Oh, Father God, we come to you now in this time, and we thank you, O Lord, for the church. We thank you for gathering us together into the body, And we thank you for your son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the head of the body. Oh, may we submit to you, Lord Jesus, this day as our head, that we might display our love and our trust in you through obedience to your word. We pray it in your holy name, Lord Jesus. Amen. If you have ever joined a branch of the military or just merely watched a movie about somebody joining the military, you know the process through which they come into this body, right? Each new recruit is stripped of their former identity. They shave their hair, they take away their civilian clothes, they make them live and train isolated from the rest of the world. Why do they do this? Well, they do this to separate them from their former patterns of life, to display in a very tangible manner that they now belong to a new group. They must separate from the world in these ways so that they can join the body of soldiers of which they are now a part. And in a similar fashion, the first commitment that God's people must make is that we are to separate ourselves from the unbelieving world. In the first 27 verses of this chapter, we have a list of all the individuals who signed this covenant. And then in verse 28, we see a general statement of the rest of those who signed this covenant vow. There we read of those who had taken these vows, the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of their God. Who signed the covenant? Those who had separated themselves from the unbelieving people of the land to the law of God. You see, the first commitment that we must make, the first foundational commitment, is that we must separate out from the unbelieving world. 
We live in a cultural environment that does not like the idea of exclusivity or separation. There is pressure for everyone to participate in all the most base and sinful of attitudes and behaviors. As an example, recently a professional hockey player refused to wear a rainbow-adorned jersey for Pride Night based on his stated Christian faith. And from the reaction of the media, you may have thought that he committed the most heinous of crimes. There was a call for his team to be fined a million dollars because he was not willing to wear this jersey. There were calls for him to lose his position on the team. How could such hatred be allowed to continue? And all the man said was that he would not participate. His commitment to the law of God meant that he had to separate himself from this worldly display. And this is the first commitment that we must make. If the kingdom of God is going to go forward in strength, the people of the kingdom must separate themselves from the world. We must commit ourselves to not giving in to the cultural norms of our society that deviate from the commands of God. Rather, we must commit to be different. That we will not blindly follow the ever-changing dictates of prevailing culture. This separation is central to the very identity of God's people who have been given the name saints. You see, the word saint is based on the term holy. We are the holy ones. And the word holy means separate, distinct, or other. Throughout the word of God, his people have been identified with this name that we are the holy ones. If you belong to God, you are holy, you are separate. While we often think of this word saint or holy in its moral sense of being righteous, that is actually derivative from its central meaning, the root meaning, which means that we are the separate ones, the distinct ones. This separation is also seen in the word church. The Greek word for church, ecclesia, means the called out ones. We have been called out of the world, just as Israel was called out of Egypt. By the blood of the Lamb, their homes were marked off as distinct and separate from the rest of the homes in Egypt. And therefore, they were passed over because the blood of the Lamb had separated them out. And then they were called out from the domain of Pharaoh's wickedness to be formed into a people of God under the law of Moses. And so too have we who have placed our faith in Christ been marked out by His blood. For the Lord Jesus went to the cross and He shed His blood so that all who have faith in Him would be marked as separate and distinct and holy. Not because we are holy in and of ourselves, but because Christ is holy and He has given to us His righteousness, we are now distinct and we are called out of this world into His kingdom. Separated from this world that we might flee the kingdom of darkness and be formed into the church. The called out one. And we need to ask ourselves, is there a separateness to my life? 
Is there a distinction between how I live and how the rest of the world lives? If I was charged with being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict me of that charge? Of course, this idea of separateness can be taken too far. We're not Amish, but rather we live in the tension of Jesus' prayer in John 17, where he says, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. You see, we continue to live in this world, but we do not live as those of the world. Rather, we are of Christ. And therefore, just as the people of Nehemiah's day committed to separate themselves from the unbelievers that surrounded them, we too must be called out and we must be separated from being of the world. But we are not called out of the world to live as disconnected, atomized individuals. Rather, we are called out of one kingdom into another kingdom. We are to separate from one group that we might be joined to another group. Look, beginning in the middle of verse 28 of our text, going into verse 29, there we see the second commitment that we must make. It says, the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law. It seems almost too elementary to highlight, but the kingdom of God is not a kingdom of two. Just you and God. A kingdom is a community. And God saves individuals, yes. You must have a personal trust in Christ Jesus to be saved, yes. But you are not saved unto yourself. You are saved into a community. You are saved into a body. To use an illustration, someone might have hypothetically believed that God was going to flood the earth in the day of Noah. But if they didn't get on the ark, they drowned it. In a day of radical individualism, we must assert that there is no neutral ground in this earth. You are either in the kingdom of Satan or you are in the kingdom of God. You either get in the boat or you don't. You either unite with God's people, the church, or you drown. The language of the Bible concerning salvation is overwhelmingly corporate in its nature. For Christ died to save His church His bride. Christ laid down His life for the sheep. We are adopted into the family of God. We are members of His body of which Christ is the head. We are stones being built together into a building, into a temple of God. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, Now you are the body of Christ 
and individually members of it. Each of us as individuals are members of something that is larger than ourselves. Or as he explains to the Ephesian church, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, right? You are no longer unbelievers, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, with the distinct ones, with the other ones, and members of the household of God. And I don't know how you can hear that and still believe the image of a Christian life as an individual experiencing church all around. No, we must reject that view. The church is not everywhere. The church is not an experience. The church is not a feeling. The visible church is the gathering of God's people along with their children who have covenanted together to walk in God's law, which finds its fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And therefore we worship, we pray, we sit under the preaching of the word, we receive the sacraments, we commune in loving fellowship, we submit to biblical authority and discipline, and we go forth with the gospel of Jesus Christ, calling people out of darkness into light, calling them out of the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom and household of God, into the body of which Christ is the head. But as a culture... We have gone so far down the trail of individualism that it's difficult for us to submit to such an idea that we must be joined to the body of Christ as a reflection of our salvation. It feels wrong to join our voices with the unified historical witness of our forefathers in the faith that said that you cannot separate yourself from the church and still identify as one who is united to Christ. Voices such as the early church father Cyprian, who wrote, No one can have God as father who does not have the church as mother. Or the Westminster Confession of Faith, our church's doctrinal statement, that says the visible church is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and family of God, out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. Now I know that people will want me to adjudicate all the different scenarios in which people have their reasons for not joining the visible church. People want to find a loophole. And I understand, and we affirm that there are situations in which someone might come to a true and saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and be providentially hindered from joining the people of God. Providentially, they may join the invisible church through faith in Jesus Christ and by God's grace be joined to that body which is saved and be unable to manifest that by joining the visible church. There are health concerns, there's aging, there's geographical limitations, all of those things. However, you don't build the rule upon the exception. And most people who choose to avoid the inconvenience of church are not doing so because they are unable to come, but rather because it takes sacrifice and commitment and dying to self to be joined with something that is bigger than yourself. But if we would see the kingdom of God grow and flourish in our generation, 
addiction, then we have to stop making excuses for why we cannot be present with the visible gathering of God's people, even as the people of God did in the day of Nehemiah. We must join with one another in covenant bonds to say that we will separate ourselves from this world and we will join ourselves together with our brothers and sisters in Christ in a curse and an oath that is sealed with the blood of Christ. We must commit to the visible church of God's people. You see, for the kingdom of God will not be rebuilt and flourish in our generation by accident. We will have to commit to separate. We'll have to commit to unite. And the final thing that we will see is that we must commit to obedience to God's Word. The final ten verses of our chapter outline the specific ways that the people of Israel would obey God's law. And while it is stated and we understand that their commitment was not merely to these specific applications, but to the whole of God's word, it's still important for us to see what they were committing themselves to, what laws were of specific relevance in rebuilding a culture grounded in obeying the Lord. And we see three general areas of commitment in these verses. Family. Work and worship. First, they commit their families to God. Look at verse 30. It says, We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. As we have spoken of before, this is not a racial distinction that is being made, but rather a religious distinction. The separation from the people of the land exists to protect the body from pagan influence. God's people were to marry only those who submitted to the law of God. And this commitment continues in the New Testament church as well, where we are commanded to marry only in the Lord. Or to use the illustration that Paul uses, that we are not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And if the kingdom of God is to be rebuilt, and if we are to have a true separation that manifests itself in our lives, then we must commit ourselves to such biblical marriages. Marriages found upon the covenant bonds between one man and one woman for life. So for single folks, this means if you are called to be married, you only pursue partners who are Christians. And you marry with the intention of living out the purpose of marriage to show forth the love of Christ, to be a mutual support and headship and submission, and to birth and raise children as God blesses and provides. You see, the rapid decline of the family in our culture will mean that in the very near future, one of the distinguishing and separating marks of Christ followers will be their commitment to lifelong heterosexual marriage that is focused upon raising the next generation in stable and loving homes. If the statistics continue to go the way that they are, those types of marriages and homes will mark you out as different from the world. But if we don't commit ourselves to such Christian marriage as God's Word commands, the kingdom will not flourish. 
But if we do, then we will live within the healthy and loving community that God desires for His people and His kingdom will go forward in power. We must commit our families to the Lord. Second, the people of God commit their work to the Lord. Look at verse 31. It says, And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year in the exaction of every debt. If we were to go back and read through the Mosaic Law, we would find much about the Sabbath. It's rooted in the pattern of creation and rest found in Genesis chapter 1, in which the Lord created the world in six days and rested on the seventh. This pattern of work and rest is what is given to God's people to follow. We are commanded to work six days and rest on the seventh. This, per- this pattern was further displayed in the command to allow the fields to rest every seventh year, as reflected in this verse. And then, after 49 years, seven times seven, in the 50th year, to release people from their debts, that is the year of Jubilee. Now, the heart of this commitment to obey the Sabbath is a commitment to trust the Lord with our work and our time. And if we would see the kingdom of God flourish and grow in our generation, then we must be a people who submit ourselves to the Sabbath principle. There is much that can be said about how the Sabbath principle is expressed in the New Testament church. Of course, we are not under the same ceremonial obligations as Old Testament saints in this regard. Nevertheless, the command... To remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy remains. And this means that we must give ourselves to a one in seven pattern of work and worship. We live in a world in which we are tyrannized by our obligations at every possible moment of our lives. Work creeps into every square inch of what we do. And therefore, To be distinct and to be other and to be united together, we must commit ourselves to one day, the Lord's day, in which we are free from our worldly commitments and we do everything we can to be present with God's people in worship. For we must commit our work and our rest to the Lord. And third... The people of God commit their worship to the Lord. In verses 32 through 39, we have outlined the tithes and the offerings that the people of God will faithfully bring to the temple. If we look at the last verse, we see the summary and the reason behind these offerings. There in verse 39, if you look there, it says, For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers, we will not neglect the house of our God. You see, they commit themselves to the tithe and to the offering so that the worship of God will continue. Now, just as there are questions about the application of the Sabbath in the New Testament, so too are there questions concerning the tithe. 
And of course, it would make little sense for us to offer oil or animals for sacrifice or wood for the burnt offering. Christ has fulfilled these obligations. He is the final and he is the complete sacrifice. So we don't bring animals in to sacrifice. We don't have to have a rotation of who's going to bring the wood in so that we can burn the sacrifice. Nevertheless, the worship of God requires that we continue to bring our offerings to the Lord. That we must commit ourselves to sacrificially give to the body of Christ. And the tithe is a good starting point. Because worship doesn't just happen. Right? These things don't just pop out of nowhere. To have a church building. To have this organization, to have full-time pastors, employees that make this go forward, to be able to go forth and reach this community with Christ, to be able to support missionaries that are on the field proclaiming the gospel to the ends of the earth. These things don't just happen. They happen when God's people unite together and commit that they will not neglect the house of God, but they will sacrificially give that God's kingdom might go forward in power. And if we would be a people who would see the flourishing of God's kingdom in our generation, then we too must commit ourselves to not neglect the kingdom of God and show that we do not worship our money, but we worship our Lord. And therefore we use our money as a means of His kingdom going forward in our generation. Throughout our lives, we have times that we take vows. And these vows are meant to be bonds of union that establish a relationship. When you get married, you take vows that establish a special relationship between you and your spouse, and by extension, your children. It makes it so that you can be united together in a unique fashion that is not to be experienced by anyone outside of these family covenant bonds. When you join the military, you take an oath that says, I do solemnly swear that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, and that I'll bear true faith and allegiance to the same, and I will obey the orders of the President of the United States and the orders of the officers appointed over me according to the regulations and the Uniform Code of Military Justice, so help me God. I had to look that one up. I didn't know it by heart. This oath, among other things, gives you the right to bear arms on behalf of our nation. And within this body, you have the right and the obligation to act in ways that would otherwise be criminal if you weren't in the military. And the same can be said for the Hippocratic Oath to become a doctor or the oath to become a policeman, or the oath that you have to take to be a minister or a deacon or an elder in the church, even to be a member of the Trail Life Scouting Group that our church hosts, you have to take an oath. Why? To establish the foundational commitments of union, commitments that ensure the stability and the unity of the body. And to be a member of the church, you must take vows. An oath, a covenant, foundational commitments, not empty words, but the very ground upon which the kingdom of God is built. 
For our vows are a commitment to the gospel of which the Lord Jesus Christ says, On this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Christian, if we would see the kingdom of God built and growing and flourishing, then we must be a people who live out these foundational commitments to separate from the world, to unite with the body of Christ, and to obey all that the Lord Jesus has commanded. These are the foundations. And by God's help, as we commit to them, not even the gates of hell will be able to prevail against us. But the kingdom of God will go forward. In power. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. O Almighty God, we come to you now in this day, and we pray, Lord, thanksgiving to you for through your Son, Jesus Christ, and his work. You have drawn us into His body. You have caused us to be His bride. And we praise You for that. And we ask, O Lord, that You would call us out to be distinct and other from a generation that is obsessed with individualism and individual experience. Let us be a witness unto this world of unity, and of love and community and commitment that goes beyond the individual but points to something greater. Even Your Son, Jesus Christ, and His kingdom that is coming in power. We pray this through Christ's holy name. Amen.